Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. We come to the second judge in the book of Judges. We studied Othniel last week uh, within the grid of the five-fold cycle that we see in this book. So tell me what the five-fold cycle is. It starts with sin, and then it moves to servitude, then it goes to supplication, and then God brings salvation, and then there's silence. So sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. So we come to Ehud. Ehud is the south paw savior, as you can see in your bulletin. He is a left-handed man going up against a very large man named Eglon, just totally appropriate, Eglon, he looks like an egg. Verse 17 in chapter 3 makes no small note about it. At the end of verse 17, Eglon was not just a fat man, a very fat man. So many titles could be used for this section of scripture. We have Ehud and Eglon. We have the Southpaw Savior. We have one of my favorites, How Lefty Put a Cut in Jabba the Hut. I think we should have, <laughs> should have named it that. Ehud is a left-handed man. He uh, joins the population of left-handed people. How many here are left-handed? Anybody? Okay. Ambidextrous counts. 11% of the population are left-handed people. Most are male. When you study left-handed people, and people have to study left-handed people because what else would we do with our tax dollars, uh, <laughs> you find out many things about them. Number one, they have a shorter lifespan. Sorry, Hannah. Uh, number two, they're usually more creative. Usually, not creative, so usually more creative. One study showed that left-handed people who graduate college earn a higher wage than right-handed people. That definitely isn't the case uh, for me. So um, maybe you'll have better luck, you left-handed people. The word sinister comes from a Latin word, sinestra, which first meant left or left-handed, and then it became unusual, quirky, weird, and then evil. So apparently left-handed people are sinister and rich, uh, <laughs> evil and not to be trusted. God is going to use the most unexpected person to deliver Israel in the most unexpected way for his glory and for their good. Now, this is a long account. I'm not going to read it this morning. I'm going to give you a highlight of it. So just eight very quick points. Don't write this down. You'll see these. Eight very quick points on this tour through this judge. Simple story. Number one, Eglon is from Moab, and he's in league with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he takes Jericho, and he brings part of Israel under Subjection. Then after 18 years, number two, of subjection and tribute payments, Ehud delivers tribute. And after delivering tribute, number three, Ehud's going to return alone, get the king one-on-one, -on -one, and assassinate him. Spoiler alert. Number four, Ehud is going to escape, and the bodyguards are going to find him dead. Number five, Ehud's going to return to his people, called the Ephraimites to war with him. Uh, number six, the Moabite army is going to be defeated. Number seven, the land's going to have peace for 80 years. And number eight, Shamgar is briefly mentioned in uh, the death of Ehud and the third judge of Israel. That's the story. Very simple. But for some reason, this story has an amazing amount of very precise detail. 
very precise detail. There are many ironies in this account, fun play on words, very messy descriptions, a lot of gore is happening. And I believe that many of the things that we're going to see this morning, they're designed to make us smile, designed to make us laugh. I think Israel, in reading this and in hearing this, would have chuckled at some of the things that are happening here. A lot of people can't handle this passage. A lot of people, this passage is not dull enough for them. Like, we need a boring passage, and this is just over the top. They can't believe such a grotesque story would be in their beautiful leather calfskin Bible. Like, no way can something this horrific be in the Bible. So, some people just out and out say it's wrong. There's a commentator named Philip Elliott, very just run-of-the-mill, fuddy-duddy commentator. And he says this, Even by the most elementary standard of ethics, the deception and murder of Eglon stand condemned. Passages like this, when encountered by the untutored reader of the scriptures, causes consternation and questioning. They condemn it. This is wrong. What Ehud did is wrong. And then they question, why is there so much gore? What's happening in this account? So some people condemn it. They reject it altogether. Some people just allegorize it. They try to make it more palatable by trying to make some things say different things. One of my favorites is Ehud's sword is not an actual sword. It's the sword of the spirit. He's presenting a message in prophecy to Eglon, the king. I can guarantee you Eglon wishes this was just the Bible that Ehud had. This, this is a sword that strikes him down dead. Some people try to moralize it. One of my favorites is in verse 19, it says that Eglon was alone. And so I've heard a sermon preached on why you should never be alone as a Christian. Because this is what happens. You get killed, apparently, if you're alone. <laughs> or just never trust left-handed people. <laughs> never trust them. Maybe this is a sermon on why you should lose weight very quickly because God's coming after you with daggers. Maybe this is a sermon on how to make and to use a, da a dagger. Or maybe this is just that left-handed people make the best assassins. Those are the people that should be in the CIA and in certain secret forces. They're, or just the killer bees. They moralize everything. Uh, be like Ehud. Don't be like Eglon. Or be like Eglon in some things and don't be like Ehud. Maybe they're just killer bees. Or maybe, maybe we just come to this and we go, I don't know what this is about. Let's just stop and read Ephesians. Like, that's what we should do instead. <laughs> what is this story about? Can I just tell you very simply what this story is about? Very easily. Verse 15, this story is about God saving his people. That's what this story is about. God saves his people. He delights in saving his people. He loves to save his people. Those of you who are parents or have ever babysat children, you know that there are many different cries that kids have. There are cries that when guests will come over to our house and they will hear one of our children crying and they go, don't you need to do something about this? We go, oh no, that's not serious. There are screams that you can hear and go, no, they're having fun, actually. You wouldn't be able to know it, but this is a really good time. And then there's that cry that when you hear it, you stop everything you're doing and you run because you know something's wrong. God does the same thing. God hears our cries, and he loves to stop everything and run and take care of you. 
God is running to you, to you even now. So this story will give us just kind of three snapshots of how God delivers his people. And we're going to see those snapshots on that five-fold cycle that Israel has been involved in in the book of Judges. So let me pray, ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll dive in together. Father, we come before you broken, lacking, needy. We ask that you would serve us this morning. You love to do that. You do not need to be served by any one of us, but rather you come to serve. You came to serve, not be served, and to give your life a ransom for many. And you are serving us even now. Jesus, you are praying for us, our great high priest, Holy Spirit. You are opening our eyes to see your word. You are praying for us in our weaknesses. And Father, you are working for your glory and for our good as you love to deliver and save your people. So God, I pray that you would do that even today. Save. Save people in this room who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior, stuck in a cycle of sin. Save them. Sanctify those that you have saved, that you have redeemed. Give us a delight for Jesus as we read in his word about the way that he loves to save. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Number one, first we are going to see in this story sin and servitude. Number one is sin and servitude, and this is verses 12 through 14. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's our sin. Sin, first step on that cycle. So the Lord strengthened Eglon to oppress them, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done the evil. So there's the servitude. Sin brings about the oppression, the judgment of God. We talked about last week why judgment is mercy. It's good. It's hopeful. There's hope inside of judgment. And so Eglon gathers to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went out and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of palm trees. That is Jericho. So how far the mighty have fallen. Those that took over Jericho with just a shout, and the walls came tumbling down, now are being taken over by a pagan king. Eglon's name means baby cow, which I find ironic because he's not such a baby cow himself. He is a Moabite man. Uh, if you want to read about the descendants of Lot, that would be Moab and Ammon. That's definitely not the most family-friendly uh, account in the Bible. This is a wicked man from wicked offspring. And he demands, his oppression is tribute. We're going to see it in verse uh, 16 or verse 15, that tribute is going to be given to Eglon. Tribute. I think the best way to understand what's happening here is A Bug's Life. You guys remember A Bug's Life? Do you remember that movie? So what's, what's the formula in A Bug's Life? The sun grows the food, the ants pick the food, and the grasshoppers eat the food, right? So the ants are Israel. They're working to harvest the food for Eglon. They have to give the food to Eglon. They can't eat the food themselves, which is why this is oppressive. Israel's slaving away to get tribute ready for Eglon. Maybe that's why Eglon's getting so fat. He just sits there and lets other people make food for him, and he just eats. And it takes 18 years, verse 14, the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. It took 18 years before they cry out to God. 
one commentator says, 18 years of oppressive slavery, slavery to the blubbery King Eglon. This is sin and servitude, sin against a holy God, and a holy God says, I'm going to judge you, put you into servitude, put you into slavery, put you into oppression so that you would cry out to me, and I will save you. And that's point number two, supplication and salvation. So we have sin and servitude, now we have supplication and salvation. This is verses 15 through 29. But... When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, there's our supplication. Now we know that's not a cry of repentance. That's not a cry of, please forgive us of our sin and iniquity. We will do this no more. This is just, we don't like our circumstances. Please come save us from our circumstances. We don't want to be oppressed anymore. But even though God knows that this is just a cry of remorse and not repentance, he still acts. He still steps in. He still loves to save his people. And so he raises up a deliverer, a judge. There's our word judge, deliverer, one who will deliver them. And his name is Ehud, and he is the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. A left-handed man. Already we have a fun play on words that would have had Israel laughing because Benjamin, uh, as Ben Ditzel and Ben Stravinko would be able to tell you, Benjamin means the son of my right hand. So God says in Holy Scripture, Ehud, the son of Gera, the son of my right hand, a left-handed man. There would already be some irony, some play on words. Right-handedness, the reason why people would name son of my right hand, right-handedness is positive in the Bible. God swears by his right hand. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. His chosen ones sit at his right hand. Why is right-handedness such a beautiful thing in the Bible, such a positive thing? It's because it's a symbol of power and a symbol of ability. Right-handedness is a symbol of power and a symbol of ability. So Ehud is the supreme example of the opposite of power and ability. Ehud is the supreme example of weakness and inability because he's left-handed. He would have been seen as an outcast. He would have been seen as somebody that society would have labeled as disabled. This man is crazy, maybe even a lunatic. Who is like this man as a left-handed person? Whenever the Bible brings up left-handedness, it is always, always seen as a disadvantage in society. And let's be honest, left-handedness is a disadvantage. I don't know if you've ever tried to sit at a desk in school They were made for right-handed people. And left-handed people, when they sit down, they have nowhere for their elbow to go, and it just keeps on falling down. This is very prejudice against left-handed people. You can't use a pair of scissors if you are a left-handed person without it hurting this part of your thumb because they're all ergonomically designed for right-handed people. It's terrible. You can't write without smearing all over the place, and then you put your hand in your pocket, and your pants get black. It's not a good thing. Even the journals that we use for the Gospel of Mark that are sitting on the back table are prejudiced against left-handed people because they have the text over on the left-hand side and then they have the space that's beautifully uh, put for right-handed people. And as I write on it, I smear all of the sides of my journal. Left-handedness is a disadvantage. It was back then. It is today. Just ask the first left-handed president. Do you know who that is? James Garfield, and he was assassinated after four months. 
okay? Four months. It's very interesting because the Bible actually doesn't say that Ehud was left-handed. My Bible says it. Your Bible probably says it. But the Bible says literally he was bound in his right hand. He was unable to left hand. He was bound in his, or he was unable to right hand. He was bound in his right hand. We don't know what this means. Maybe this is a disability. Maybe this is, he was born with a withered hand. Maybe there was an injury that happened to him. But for some reason, he is unable to right hand, so he uses his left hand. This is a surprising choice for God to use. An outcast, potentially disabled, society wouldn't have looked upon him favorably, and God chooses him. God chooses him. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Uh, of Moab. Now, Ehud, verse 16, made himself a sword. It's, it's a dagger. It has two edges. It's a cubit in length. That's 15 to 18 inches long. There's probably no cross piece on it. So it's probably just a handle and then the dagger attached to it because he knows he's about to go through TSA and get patted down. So he has to put it in a place, in a fashionable place where there isn't going to be some shape of it. So there's probably no handle crossbar above the handle. It's just one long piece that he's going to be able to put and kind of tape down to his right side. And he's going to be able to go before Eglon and do this. And I think that lends itself to maybe the possibility that he was, Ehud was disabled. Because I think Eglon would not be threatened by a disabled man. Go ahead and let Ehud come talk to me. He can't wield a weapon in his right hand because of his disability. Then maybe he can't wield one at all. So his deformity presents no security risk to the Moabite king. So, verse 16, he makes this sword, binds it to his right thigh under his cloak, which is where he would not have been patted down by the TSA. He would have been patted down on his left side because you would pull your sword from your left side. So they're not going to check the right side, so he's able to walk through with a dagger. Verse 17, he presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. If you want to moralize anything, maybe you can moralize that. The sin of putting others under oppression for the purpose of tribute and eating has now destroyed Eglon in his fatness. So sin always kills you. There you go. There's your moral point. Sin will always destroy you. Verse 18. It came about when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute. He's probably the head of the tribute uh, delegation. So all of these people bring in all of these boxes full of food. And he sends the people away. In verse 19, he turns back from the idols which are at Gilgal. So he turns back from the worship of pagan idolatry. He turns back from uh, not following what his Israelite people were doing. And he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now this is very interesting because he says, I have a secret message for you. And the king is going to answer Keep silence. I have a secret message for you, and the king is going to say, keep silence, which literally in Hebrew, it's the word hush. So he's going to say, hush, everybody hush. Uh, the, the Arabic cognate of this word is hush. Hush is a very old word, just shh, Eglon's shushing everybody. Ehud has something to say. I want to listen. What does Eglon think that this secret message is going to be? Maybe there's a message that Ehud has about a rebellion starting. Maybe Eglon doesn't want 
others to hear about a rebellion, and Ehud's going to say, hey, you need to do something about it. Maybe it's just a difficult thing to say about the land, and Eglon doesn't want to have others here. Maybe Ehud brought him an extra Snickers bar, and Eglon doesn't want to share it. Who knows what he's going to say? And so Eglon says, wait, everybody be quiet. But look at the reaction of the people when Eglon says, be quiet. This is what's so interesting to me. He says, keep silence. Hush, everybody hush. And all who attended him left. Those two don't go together. Everybody be quiet. And the secret service says, okay, we're out of here. I, I just, I wonder what Ehud must have been thinking. He walks in. He's scouting out all of the secret service. He looks at King Eglon. He says, how am I going to do this? I have to kill this man. Uh, I'm going to probably kill him, and then I'm going to have to walk out with all these people. How am I going to make this happen? Okay, I have a secret message, and maybe that will get him to tell everybody to leave. I don't know if it's going to work, because maybe it'll just be us two together in a room, and he's not going to like that. How am I going to get the secret service out of here? And so he says, I have a secret message for you, and Eglon says, okay, everybody be quiet. He's got a message, and the secret service says, okay, we're out of here. And Ehud must have looked around at the sovereignty of God on display and go, wow, this is actually going to be much easier than I thought it was going to be. This is amazing. So marveling at God's sovereignty, everybody leaves. Verse 20, Ehud comes to Eglon while he's sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud now changes it from I have a secret message to I have a message from God for you. I have a message that's from God himself for you. And Eglon arises from his seat, struggles with such an effort to stand up from his seat, to bend over, to listen to, to what Ehud is going to say. Ehud, as he watches Eglon stand up, he sees his chance. He's got his dagger on his right side. He sees his chance. This is it. Just a wide open view here. I can get at, at him and kill him. The question is, does Ehud have the guts to do this? This is a gut check of whether he's going to trust God or not. I have a whole list of these gut jokes, and we'll <laughs> stop there. What does Ehud do? Ehud comes to him. Ehud stretches out his left hand, verse 21, takes the sword from his right thigh and thrusts it into his belly. And the handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, and he couldn't draw out the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. The King James Version of the Bible says the dirt came out. <laughs> we can't put refuse in the Bible, so we'll just say the dirt came out. He skewers King Eglon, a dagger from the front to the back, with just his guts pouring out of both sides. And Ehud can't pull the dagger back out. And I've always thought, I wonder if Ehud is really sad because he made this dagger. This is a homemade dagger. I don't know how long it took him to make this dagger. And I wonder if there was a moment he puts the sword in, he tries to pull it out, Eglon falls down, and he's like, uh, I, I should leave. He, I don't know what's going to happen, but, but I want my sword. I, what do I do? Uh, maybe, maybe there's one... One attempt. I just see in my sanctified imagination, just one attempt. I see just a, huh, no, it's not happening. One attempt. Where does he go? Verse 23. Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked. They looked for him. Where did Ehud go? Did, does he 
go out the windows? It doesn't say. Does he just walk right past the guards? Maybe he just waltzes right past them. Thanks for giving us time. We had a great conversation. Now I'm going back home. What does he do? Whatever he does, he gets away free. And the guards go to check the door, and they find that the door has been locked. The doors of the roof chamber were locked. My Bible says in verse 24, Behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. Behold is a very powerful, pregnant word in Hebrew. Hine, it means stop and see that this is not something that you would have thought was going to happen. This is like, whoa, this is new. So they, they check, oh, whoa, this is new. I wonder what's happening. And they said, well, he's relieving himself in the cool room. He's using the bathroom. My Bible says relieving himself. Literally, the word is he, he's covering his feet. It's a euphemism, right? You have to cover your feet when you're using the bathroom. So he covers his feet. He's in the, he's in the cool room. Let's just, we'll, we'll leave him alone. And they waited until they, my Bible says, became anxious. Literally, it's became ashamed. They waited. They're waiting. Is he, I wonder if he's okay. This is, if you have toddlers, this is a common occurrence in the household of a toddler, right? This is, somebody says, I need to use the bathroom. You say, okay, go ahead. And then like three hours later, is he still in there? Like, we need to go check. This is, something's wrong. They're anxious. They're waiting an uncomfortable amount of time. And as we are reading through this, you need to know that Israel would have been laughing hysterically at this. God has not only delivered them, but he has made a fool out of their enemies. He's made a fool out of their enemies. This would bring a smile to the faces of those who had been delivered. It's okay to laugh at this story. It's a sign of maturity when you respond to the scriptures the way the scriptures desire for you to respond. So we should look at this and not be uncomfortable This is beautiful, poetic comedy happening. So they wait until they become anxious. Verse 25. But behold, there it is again, Hine, behold, he didn't open the doors. This is unexpected. Normally he uses the restroom and he comes out. This is weird. Therefore, they took the keys and they opened them. And behold, last Hine, behold, this is definitely not what they expected to see. Their master had fallen to the floor dead. This is gory glory. This is beautiful glory on display that God delivers in a majestic, grotesque way. Ehud escapes while the servants are delaying. That's verse 26. Ehud escaped while they were delaying. That's beautiful rhyming in Hebrew. You just have to take my word for this on this one. Uh, It's a rhyme. While Ehud escaped, the servants delayed is a beautiful rhyming. It's a parallelism, again, designed to get Israel to be able to be involved in this account and to laugh at what's happening. And what happens? He passes by the idols. We're not going to worship the idols anymore. Verse 27, it came about when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Salvation and silence. Salvation and silence. Salvation has come in the most unexpected of ways. 
But after the supplication and salvation that we see in point number two, the story doesn't end there, unfortunately. It moves on to the end of this cycle, right? We have sin and servitude. We have supplication and salvation, deliverance. And then we have silence and sin. This is point number three. We have silence and sin in verse 30, the end of verse 30, and in to chapter 4, verse 1. The land is undisturbed for 80 years. Verse 31, And after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. You think he saved Israel? He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad is probably eight feet long, kind of stick with a six-inch circumference at the handle that you'd use to either poke the oxen to get them going or you'd kind of slap them on the side. And he killed 600 Philistines with this ox goad. First of all, what is the ox goad made out of? Because I try hitting things uh, like trees when my, me and my boys are playing with little sticks of swords and I hit the, the tree trunk in my backyard and my stick breaks. And my kids look at me and they laugh and they say, Daddy, your sword broke. <laughs> Where is this wood that doesn't break after beating up 600 Philistines? How does this happen? I want to know the detail of what's going on here. It reminds us of Samson, right? It's kind of a pre-figuring of what's going to happen with Samson and a donkey's jawbone. There are amazing weapons in the book of Judges. Shamgar uses an ox goad to kill 600 people. Ehud makes a homemade dagger. Uh, Jael, as we're going to see next week, takes a hammer and a tent peg and kills somebody. Gideon uses horns and torches, and that works. Samson uses a donkey's jawbone and lights foxes' tails on fire. And there's a woman who crushes Abimelech's head with a millstone. I have questions about that one too, because how did this happen that she could push this over the side? It's just, there's so much that I want to watch on the DVDs in heaven one day. <laughs> so who is this man, Shamgar? How does he accomplish this? What, what, what's happening here? We don't know anything about this guy, and we don't need to, because it's not about the deliverer. It's about the God who sends the deliverer. God is the hero, not Shamgar. God is the hero, not Ehud. God is the hero. But, chapter 4, verse 1, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Eighty years of peace was not long enough for them to turn in repentance and turn from sin. We marvel at God's salvation in this account and we marvel at our own sinful depravity that after 80 years of being given peace, they would say, you know what, we're done. We don't want to follow God anymore. And they're going to turn back to the cycle, back to sin, back to servitude, back to supplication, salvation, silence, yet again. So how do we wrap all these things up? Just two main points. Just two main points as we end our study of Ehud and Shamgar. Number one, God's deliverance. Since this is all about God's deliverance, I want to put God's deliverance on display. This is all about God saving his people. God's deliverance is gloriously active and intentional. God's deliverance is gloriously active and intentional. He doesn't wait. He doesn't just pick at random. Even right-handed and left-handedness is important to God. 
and he acts in the middle of the mess of his people. God delivers in the middle of our mess. He's mixed up in the dirty affairs of our lives. This is beautiful hope because God does not stand back and wait for you to clean yourself. God's not looking at you right now and saying, you know what, if you can spray a little bit more Lysol on your soul, clean it up, then I will come to you. No. God says, if you would cry out in your mess, I'd be more than happy to meet you in that mess. I will do the cleansing for you. This is one of the biggest reasons that I've heard when I'm talking with people and sharing the gospel with people and trying to invite people to come to church and get plugged in. One of the biggest reasons why people give to me that they don't want to come to church is they say, you know, I've got, I've got to get things that I've got to figure out before I come to church. I've got to kind of just clean myself up a little bit. There's things I've got to stop doing. There's things I have to start doing. And then I'll go to church. And I just try to remind them, you know, those things get cleaned up in church. This is not a pristine, beautiful chapel where everybody's got everything together. This is a hospital where we walk in those doors on our last leg of life, about ready to bleed out, and we need God to jump into the mess of our lives and to save us and redeem us. God's deliverance is active and intentional. God doesn't wear a hazmat suit around you. It's not, oh, I don't want to touch you. I don't want to, uh. God touches lepers. Jesus touches lepers, and lepers don't make him sick. He makes lepers clean. Cry out to him in the leprosy of your sin, and he will cleanse you. Weeping over your sin, mourning over your sin, lasts for the night, but the Bible says joy then comes in the morning. God loves to deliver you gloriously active, gloriously intentional, and he loves to deliver you in your mess and then help you to make you laugh again. He wants you to rejoice in his deliverance. God makes his people, in this account, laugh after their sorrow is done. They get to smile at the deliverance of the Israelites from Eglon. Another, another uh, moralism from this passage, don't ever oppress God's people because you might become the butt of one of God's jokes. We're laughing at Eglon in his sin, in his depravity. God's deliverance is gloriously active and intentional. Number two, conclusion number two, God's deliverance is gloriously astonishing and intriguing. God's deliverance is astonishing and intriguing. It's active and intentional. He's moving towards you. He's doing the work for you. It's intentional. He uses every single aspect of who you are. And his deliverance is astonishing. It's intriguing. Why does he use Ehud? Why does he work this way? It's not the kind of deliverer we would think would show up. God's ways are not dull and boring. Such a crazy, messy description of amazing deliverance found in this section. God's ways are not dull and boring. Look who God chose. This isn't the deliverer that anybody would have expected. Maybe he had had a disability. Many people that God used had disabilities, right? Moses, I, I can't speak very well. And God uses him. Ehud takes whatever disability he had and turned it into a possibility by trusting God. I'll just trust you, God. Can I ask you this morning, where in your life 
Is there something about who you are? Maybe your personality. Maybe your character. Maybe some aspect of what you love or desire. Maybe your physical appearance. Maybe you wish you were taller. You wish you were shorter. You wish you were this or that. What, what might God use you for? He fearfully and wonderfully made you just the way that you are. I don't think Ehud ever would have expected to be used by God the way that he's used here. And yet God says, I'm picking you. I think today we should walk out of here rejoicing, thanking God for making us the way that he made us. And saying, God, I want to glorify you and however you would use me to glorify you. He uses left-handed people. He uses weirdos. He uses nobodies. Look at the 12 disciples. Look at that list of weirdos and nobodies that end up rocking the whole world, turning the world upside down, the book of Acts says. God's deliverance comes in ways that the world calls weak, strange. We too are like Ehud. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, Paul says, Who among you is noble, wise, strong? God doesn't use the strong things of the world. He uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We are called not because of our abilities. We are called despite our inabilities. We don't have abilities. God gives us through grace, in spite of our failures, the ability to honor him and glorify him. Knowing this shatters our pride. That's why we saying nothing in my hand I bring. I have nothing to offer God. I think sometimes we believe that up until the point of salvation, and then for some reason we think we get saved, and now I have something in my hand to bring God. No, nothing, never. We have nothing. Even the good works that we have that we will get crowns for doing one day on the last day, we'll just take them and throw them back at Jesus' feet because we couldn't have done those good works if it hadn't been for God's grace. But even though God's deliverance is gloriously astonishing and intriguing, such an interesting account, Ehud Nothing that Ehud did changed the hearts of the Israelites. They were in bondage under sin. They knew what they needed to do. They knew what they should do, but they simply did not do it. And they could not do it because they were enslaved to sin. And friends, our real bondage does not consist of Moabites or fat kings or physical and economic oppression. No left-handed Savior can break us free from our tyrant. There is one with nail-scarred hands who can and does deliver us. And the only tragedy in our story is knowing that we have this Savior, but not crying out to him for help. We need Jesus. And Jesus delivered us. He delivered us through astonishing and intriguing ways. He didn't have form or appearance that we would have looked favorably upon him. Remember Isaiah said that? He looked normal. He's not the way that Messiah should look in the eyes of the Jews. This isn't somebody that we would esteem as glorious. If you were to line up a hundred Jewish men and I were to say, pick ten that you think are the Messiah, you would have never picked Jesus. You would have thought it was somebody else. Maybe tall, handsome, beautiful. That's how Israel worked. Remember, that's how we work. We look on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. Jesus himself had no form or appearance or majesty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, and he crushed his people's enemies through his own weakness. 
and he delivered us through active and intentional ways. He took our curse. He took our penalty. He died our death. He conquered sin. He conquered death by rising from the grave and offering each of us free, everlasting joy with him forever. So what is this story about? God loves to save his people. God loves to save his people. So cry out to him today. All of us need redemption. All of us need saving. All of us are sinners stuck in that cycle. Cry out to Jesus to save you from your sins today. Turn from them. Turn to the Savior and follow him the rest of your days. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty and the majesty inherent in it that we get to see the unbelievable nature of an unexpected deliverer delivering in an unexpected way. God, you are amazing. And we're blown away again at your glory on display. But God, we don't want to be like Israel who saw your glory but didn't change. We want to see your deliverance of Israel and of us and let it lead us to living differently. Not to earn your favor. We are never going to work to earn your love. We work because you have graciously given us your love through Jesus Christ. And he, the conqueror of death, is our hope, our true judge, our true deliverer, and our Savior both now and forevermore. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and confirm these truths to our hearts as we sing.